Hi, I'm Dr. Liz Sutherland from AARM, the Association for the Advancement of Restorative Medicine, and this is Restorative Medicine Conversations. I'd like to invite you to sit back and relax as I talk with experts from around the world who are making a difference in the field of restorative medicine. We hope you'll also consider joining us at our annual conferences or through our fellowship program in herbal medicine. If you'd like more details about opportunities to earn CME, or you'd like to subscribe to this podcast and receive our monthly newsletter, visit us at restorativemedicine.org. Today, it's my pleasure to interview Dr. Luis Martinez on the topic of stem cell therapy. Dr. Martinez, could you begin by explaining what stem cell therapy is? Certainly, and thank you for having me. So stem cell therapies involve utilizing what we know are stem cells, which are cells that are not differentiated, capable of either continuously multiplying and keeping a stem cell pool or differentiating into other specific types of cells. Stem cell therapy usually involves either patient-owned stem cells, which are considered autologous stem cell therapies, or donor-derived stem cell therapies, which are considered allogeneic stem cell therapies. When the stem cell therapies are donor-derived, is there any risk of the cells containing abnormalities due to, say, environmental toxins or, or simply from errors during cell replication? Sure. That's a good question. There's always potential risks involved. However, as technology has progressed quite a bit, we have very high standards of quality control for the types of cells that are grown and administered. So usually, I'd say almost all the time, before a patient receives the sort of allogeneic stem cell therapies, they have been properly evaluated and undergone screening before the, the patient is ready to receive them. So these labs where these stem cell therapies are grown and, and prepared go through all the types of quality control, infectious disease uh, processes, looking at cell morphology, looking at everything to ensure that the, the final cellular product is adequate and can be given therapeutically in a clinical environment. What about immune system rejection of allogeneic yeah. stem cells in the recipient? C correct. Well, what we've seen is as you purify and use specifically certain cell populations, such as purified mesenchymal stem cells, the risk for immune reaction goes down a lot. Now, traditionally, when patients receive, for example, bone marrow transplants, which are populations of diverse cells within that transplant, the possibility of reaction goes up, and there needs to be even more intense criteria and evaluation process before giving for, for matching purposes, HLA matching and such. Now, again, when we do very purified types of infusions, such as mesenchymal stem cell administrations, the reaction, uh, adverse reactions related to them go down dramatically. Thank you. So what kinds of health conditions do you treat in your practice using stem cell therapy? First of all, we have multiple practices. Uh, I have multiple practices, practices in, in Puerto Rico and Florida, which are, again, within FDA territory. And then I also consult and travel and treat patients internationally. So it really depends where we are. Obviously, within the FDA regulated spaces, 
we limit stem cell therapies to patient-owned autologous therapies. And then internationally, we have centers in Latin America, South America, Chile, and Costa Rica, to be specific. We're able to use allogeneic stem cell therapies. We've been focusing mostly on a couple of different routes, either neuro-neurological treatments, immune, immune modulation in cancer. And then we're also doing a lot of systemic treatments targeting frailty and aging, which is a really exciting field right now. So both, we could say, pathological conditions and also yes. the effects of, of what we might consider normal aging. Correct. As time progresses, I think the general consensus is sort of switching slowly but surely into considering aging more of a disease state than just a normal gradual decline. And as such, um, again, we're focusing on that. We've seen already studies. There's a couple of uh, biotech companies right now looking at the administration of mesenchymal stem cells as systemically to address aging. There's been some studies already in the U.S., phase one, phase two clinical trials with mesenchymal stem cells with good results. So again, we know the science really supports this. And I think, again, the interventions will continue to grow. I think when many people think about stem cell therapy, they think about growing new nerves or growing new cells. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like the effects of stem cell therapy include a wide array yes. of beneficial effects. Could you speak to some of those effects? And, and if it's easier for you to use the example of particular patients that you've treated. Sure. That would be great. Or, or you can keep it abstract. Gladly. So there's a couple, of, as you mentioned, possibly misconceptions about stem cell therapy or expectations as to what we will achieve. And it's not always full regeneration or full repair. Sometimes we look at really affecting disease states and progress, for example, in cases such as multiple sclerosis, where we know there's an ongoing attack, autoimmune attack on myelin sheets, on the CNS, on the systemic nervous system. And what we're trying to do with these stem cell therapies, first of all, is we're trying to shut down that immune attack because these stem cells have immunomodulating properties. So we can see, depending on the patient and disease state, A, stopping progression, and then B, looking at repair regeneration. And, you know, we've, we've had some cases with that where we've been able to, you know, patients with, a, again, going back to MS, we're able to uh, stop the progression. And then with subsequent treatments, we've seen improvements, even on imaging, on certain areas that have been affected because of the disease. So certainly, I think it can be considered maybe a two-step approach in terms of what we're trying to do with stem cell therapy. Same when we address, for example, joints, you know, arthritis, cartilage degeneration, tendons, ligaments. When we inject into these places, there's plenty of evidence now that we can impact and we can help the repair process. So does it seem to you that stem cell therapy could address the root cause of some of these neurodegenerative, neuroinflammatory conditions? Yes. I mean, it definitely addresses, I'd say, root cause or one of the major aspects of the disease. Now, sometimes these autoimmune diseases, even the CNS diseases, don't actually start in the CNS, you know, they start because of different aspects, uh, toxicity, leaky gut, you know, all this different, different situations that will predispose the body towards autoimmunity. So sometimes, depending on the disease, we're targeting the root cause. 
on other situations, we're actually just focusing on a more physiological and more potent regulation of the disease. Because as you know, sometimes with these autoimmune conditions, we're looking at traditional medicine will prescribe uh, steroid therapies chronically and then all the new next generation biologics, which come with their adverse events, with their side effects, which can be serious. So through stem cell therapies, the idea is to help repair, but also help modulate in a more physiological, safe manner. Mm. So given that stem cells work through several mechanisms, uh, does that mean that you don't necessarily have to administer the stem cells to the target tissue, but you're aiming for a kind of overall systemic anti-inflammatory impact? Correct. And that's a wonderful point. We usually try to do both. So when we have a certain condition, we'll try to address local tissue damage. But we also believe, I also believe that systemic administration is always of benefit. And again, this goes back to our normal human physiology. If you look at when you have some sort of damage, the acute repair response from the body includes increased liberation of stem cells from the bone marrow space into circulation. So again, I think that the systemic administration often mimics the normal repair process, which is impaired and affected by aging and chronic diseases and inflammation. I can see where if you're using stem cell therapy in, in say, an acute and evolving kind of situation like an acute stroke versus, say, Parkinson's disease, which is a more chronic degenerative uh, condition, that the timing of the therapy would need to be taken into consideration. So is there optimal timing for treatment? Yeah. Based on my experience, I believe that the sooner we treat, the better. And I think it makes a lot of sense, again, because of A, the additional damage that can occur with time with an untreated condition. As you mentioned, Parkinson's, you know, substantia nigra neurons continue to be affected, die off, deteriorate. So the, the more you wait, the more damage you have to deal with and the harder the repair is. So yeah, I, I believe that timing is always uh, of the essence and the sooner you can treat these patients, the better. I understand that there are several different modes of stem cell therapy administration. Yes. Does the mode of delivery and the type of stem cell that you're going to use depend on the condition that is being treated? Yes. Mode of delivery, type of stem cell, it definitely will affect and will be dependent on condition being treated. Of course, if we go back to some really straight out, straightforward conditions such as musculoskeletal pathologies, then you really want to go into the space where you're, you know, where, where it's affected, you know, knees, joints, tendons, ligaments, you want to try to inject directly into the space affected because that's uh, usually will produce the best outcomes. Now, when you're dealing with systemic conditions, uh, autoimmune conditions, inflammatory conditions, it can be more challenging because say, for example, you can have autoimmune arthritis or you can have uh, lupus and you can have distal organ damage. So usually you, you want to treat systemically and if possible, you can also treat specifically into certain organs. And also the type of stem cell definitely has to do a lot with that. For example, in, again, in offshore or in Latin America, we can, for the neuro conditions, we can actually 
culture mesenchymal stem cells that become preneural precursors. So they are already committed to that neural lineage, and we've seen better results with those than with just general stem cells. I see. So in terms of administration, I was also thinking about the route being intravenous or arterial. Do you use several different modes of administration? Yeah, we, we do a lot of intravenous, and I think intravenous route makes a lot of sense. There's been a lot of concern from critics regarding lung entrapment for intravenous therapies, but again, based on what we know and studies, the lung entrapment process usually is temporary. And afterwards, the cells eventually are released, and there's evidence, uh, quite a bit of evidence of distal activity of these cells once they are released from the lungs. So we know it, we know they work. So intravenous is definitely a route we use. And again, intraarterial, um, we have used that route with in combination with other colleagues. For example, we've gone into heart treatments and other conditions where perhaps an intraarterial route can help in combination with other systemic administrations. Do patients who are going to receive stem cell therapy need to do any um, special preparations in advance? Yeah, we usually do specific protocols prior to giving or administering these therapies. For example, we try to minimize systemic inflammation. We put patients on nutritional guiding. We do a type of time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting, fasting mimicking, because we really want to optimize the body. And that's another very important point. When the stem cells reach their environments, there have to be favorable environments so they can respond better, so that the repair can be achieved. So yes, we have protocols that we do we call them patient preconditioning prior to receiving the therapies and those help. And would they be initiated about a month before an initial? At least a month. Yeah. We'll usually do between one and three months before the treatment. We'll have them on those protocols, diet, certain nutraceuticals, peptides, and such to help with this. I'm sure you have many outstanding clinical case studies to yes. share, but I'm wondering if you might pick one or two of them to tell us about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of them, as you said. You know, one of them precisely in neuro, actually two, we had a patient uh, post-stroke. Um, actually, the patient had, was already nine, 10 months out post-stroke on rehab, uh, completely you know, right side, could not move his right side. And we did administer multiple rounds of stem cell therapies. For this patient, we actually did a combination of intranasal, which is another route that we can do, intranasal and intravenous uh, approaches. And this patient regained almost completely normal functioning. And this was a patient which, you know, had been post-stroke under uh, therapy rehab and his prognosis for regaining that level of functioning was was not good. And after the stem cell treatments, he responded extremely well. So that's definitely a case there which had really good results. We've also had really good results with ortho, orthopedic cases, patients with uh, advanced arthritis, degenerative arthritis, significant loss of cartilage that have had amazing results, uh, tendon, ligament improvement re- repair seen on on imaging, a lot of autoimmune cases where systemic inflammation has been dramatically improved. So yes, a lot of cases do come to mind. The post-stroke patient, how long after their initial stroke did you uh, administer stem cell therapy? We did that. It was 
he visited us about nine months post-stroke. Wow. That's, yeah. That's amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing. It was, it was quite a bit of time afterwards where, you know, as you know, I mean, there's a really short window usually for, um, you know, the repair process and all that to really kick in. So we treated him. We, we weren't expecting such a dramatic result as, as we observed. I'd like to switch gears a little bit now, if that's okay with you, and just yes. ask you a couple of questions about neuropeptides. Yes, of course. Do you sometimes combine neuropeptide and stem cell therapy when yes. you treat patients? Yes, totally. Um, and I, I'd say, and that's a very important point, I'd say not sometimes, but most of the time. You know, With peptides and what, we, what we've seen with peptides, the amazing benefits I love to integrate. I love to integrate peptides into most of my treatments right now, including stem cell therapies. And neuropeptides have been wonderful. We've had really good results with peptide therapies in, in the neural space and in other conditions. But yes, we do a lot of integration. And oftentimes we'll have patients continue peptide therapies, peptide treatment after receiving the treatment. I assume they have to come to your office to continue the neuropeptide treatments. I mean, very um, few so peptides are oral, right? Yeah, well, um, actually, we have uh, different types of peptides. Uh, some of them are injectable, sub-Q. So there's a couple of options. Sometimes when they come in for the stem cell therapies, we'll have them leave with peptides for a few months duration. We'll, we'll take care of that. Or sometimes we can actually send peptides to their homes afterwards. So it really depends on where the patient is ease of delivering these peptides and such. Can you tell me a little bit about and name some of the peptides sure. that you use? Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the peptides that, again, has shown a lot of potential and benefit in, in neural conditions is uh, thymosin beta-4. It's uh, from the thymosin family. It actually can upregulate repair processes. And it has a lot of studies specifically on improving or helping repair myelin and oligodendrogenesis. So it's one of these peptides that we use a lot for different types of, uh, again, when we're simulating repair, uh, but specifically for neuro, it does well. There's another peptide, which is not specifically a neuropeptide, but it, it works wonders in terms of repair, which is VPC-157. And this peptide, again, will help, generally speaking, will just ramp up repair in the body. So I, I like to integrate it a lot when we do treatments, be it neuro or otherwise. VPC does help a lot with that. You know, and then we have other types of peptides that, again, may be integrated into the neuro treatments, depending. Like, for example, you know, the IGF secretagogues, the growth hormone secretagogues. We know growth hormone is a very powerful hormone for repair in general, and uh, raising IGF-1 levels can have a really positive effect. So... Sometimes we'll, again, depending on the patient, we'll upregulate IGF-1 through these secretagogues with the expectation that it will help improve repair processes in the body. So that's another one there. We have cerebrolysin. It's a combination of peptides, neurotrophic factors and such that, again, when administered continuously, can help improve nerve growth factor concentration in the body. And it does really target CNS with good results. So yeah, there's quite a few of these peptides that we use on an ongoing basis and really can make a difference in some of these patients. I understand that this will depend somewhat on what you're treating and the peptide that you're using, but how long on average would you expect that a patient would remain on neuropeptide? You, you know, usually on average, roughly speaking, we want them at least three months on treatments. 
again, some of these peptides, we might be more aggressive in the initial weeks and then taper down gradually. And some of these peptides, we might actually keep them on for three to six months as part of the maintenance protocols. But, you know, usually you expect to see results within one and three months with these peptides. Well, thank you, Dr. Martinez. These are both very exciting frontiers in a way of treatment for some generally considered untreatable conditions. Yes. I've reached the end of the questions I have. Is there anything else that you would like to be sure we know before we go with you? A couple of things. One, I'm very optimistic about what we're doing and what the future holds. I think as we continue to advance knowledge and develop more precise treatments uh, protocols, we will continue to achieve even better results. I think sometimes results will be affected by, again, if patients can complete or not the ongoing protocols. And then the other thing is just more on the, I guess, regulatory side. It is a bit frustrating and we need to be aware or everyone should be made aware of the challenges that we have within the U.S. regulatory space. Because as you may probably know, a lot of these therapies have become more restricted in an FDA territory, including peptides now. I mean, we're actually even now, we've started a, a nonprofit for peptides to help try to save peptides because a lot of them are being targeted by the FDA so that we cannot have them available for our patients anymore. So I think that's also a very important point there. And one last thing, again, going to the U.S. and regulatory space, I think it is important to understand that practitioners should understand which products really are stem cell therapies and which are not. I often see a lot of products that claim to have live stem cells and they technically do not have these cells. And, you know, practitioners buy these products and inject patients with apparently live stem cells. And um, so I, I think a lot of education and research has to go into what is being used and how. Can you recommend a couple of trustworthy resources for that kind of research? Yes, I would be happy to. Maybe I can send you an email with some lists, some websites that can be used by practitioners looking for references and what and where. So if it's fine with you, I'll send that over. That sounds great. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. My, My pleasure. We'll be in touch. Thanks again for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode of Restorative Medicine Conversations, please subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter. And if you'd like more opportunities to learn from experts like my guest today, visit restorativemedicine.org to find out more about the Association for the Advancement of Restorative Medicine, our annual conferences, our Herbal Medicine Fellowship, and the Journal of Restorative Medicine.